Welcome to Leveling the Playing Field, a podcast featuring women who work in sport. I'm Bobby Sue Doyle Hazard. Thanks for joining. And you guys, the world is basically insane right now. This is how I feel. Um, I know a bunch of you feel the same way because I talk to some of you on a pretty daily basis. So um, make sure you are taking some time away from the onslaught of insanity. Um, Shut the news off, do some meditation, go for a run, pet some puppies, whatever it is. Uh, Go do that. And then take some action. Whatever it is that you feel like, you know, you can do to help whatever the particular issue is, do it. Um, So that's my my call to action to you all this week on the greater scope of the world. Um, Happy summer, I guess. It is now summer. It is a thousand degrees here in Tampa. <laughs> um, I hope those of you who uh, have a bit of a break are enjoying it and uh, getting outside a bit. Big congratulations to friend of the pod, Dan Worley of the White Bronco, uh, on the birth of his son, Jack Hamilton Worley. Cutest name ever. Um, and really cute baby must come from the baby's mom and not Dan. Just kidding, Dan. We love you here. Um, you guys, a bunch of you rated the podcast last week, which was awesome. It made me happy every time I saw the number go up. So those of you who haven't, please take the time to do that. And if you could also write a quick review, even if it just says, I love this pod, that would be great. Um, make sure you're following us at LTPF pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And a big thanks to our continued sponsor, Florida International University. They're helping us make this happen. This week's episode is with Stephanie Jarvis. So Stephanie currently serves as the principal of S. Jarvis Consulting, a sports and events consulting firm. She's also a lecturer at the Arizona State University's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. She served as COO of the Phoenix Final Four Local Organizing Committee, which worked with the NCAA to execute the 2017 Men's Final Four in Phoenix. Prior to that, she served as Senior Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of the Arizona Organizing Committee, which worked with the college football playoffs to execute the 2016 CFP National Championship in Glendale. And then prior to that, She was the general counsel and chief compliance officer at the Fiesta Bowl. Um, And she's also worked for the Indianapolis-based Horizon League, where she was an associate commissioner and general counsel. She has had quite an interesting career in sports in, in a way that is different than so many other attorneys I know who work in the industry. So it's a really interesting conversation that we have. Um, And I think it'll open some, I don't know, make some light bulbs go off for those of you thinking of going to law school, but not sure what you want to do and um, different things that you can do with a legal degree in sports. So without further ado, here is my interview with Stephanie Jarvis. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Bobby Sue. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How about you? I am doing well. Is all good in Arizona right now? It is. We actually had a little monsoon rain this morning, so it is a happy time here. 
Does that confuse everyone there? Yes. <laughs> it hasn't rained since March. So we get yeah. da- we get daily deluges at this time of year and it still yeah. confuses people. So, yeah, I'm just happy I didn't have to drive because no one here knows how to drive in the rain. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yep. so um, I like to start off by asking, how did you fall in love with sports? I think I fell in love from, with sports from a young age. Um, my mom was not so into sports, but my dad was. We went to Ohio State games growing up. Um, they both went to Ohio State, so that's where they met. And so we went to football games. My brother and I just really liked it. We were big Bulls fans um, growing up, and I happened to be um, in college at the time of Michael Jordan. And so it was just a really fun time. And I just always was drawn to watching sports. And so I'm very lucky that I actually get to work in it. Was um, basketball your you know, favorite sport to watch or was it football? Probably college football with college basketball a close second. <laughs> yeah. Did you play uh, when you were younger? Um, my illustrious track career ended at about the third grade <laughs> along with soccer. And then I became a cheerleader and I actually was a cheerleader in college as well. So depending on your perspective, I played sports or not played sports. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I think that counts. It, it's an it's athletic fun. endeavor to be a cheerleader. I got um, hurt a lot. So yeah, I think that counts. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of trust involved in it too, which. Yes. Yes. All seems very scary to me, but, um, and it's so different than cheerleading at the pro level. So I'm always definitely. a little confused, but. Um, yes, definitely. We wore more clothing. Fair. Um, yeah. and I think, well, and I think professionally they're, they're more dancers than they are. Yeah, absolutely. Which it, so we, in and of itself, yeah. by the way, this girl has zero rhythm. So <laughs> I mean, and we, I, I was always on a co-ed cheerleading squad. So we had guys and it was more about the stunts and that, and I was not quite so good at dancing myself. So I could <laughs> never have been on the dance team or a professional cheerleader. I would have been laughed out of the room so yes um you went to northwestern for undergrad how did you come to that decision to go there so i had been going to chicago for vacations in the summer because we lived in ohio and it was maybe a four or five hour drive so we always went up there and when i was in junior high they had a program where you could take the sats and if you scored well enough they had a program at northwestern where you actually could go in the summer live in the dorms and take classes in the summer. And so I did that and I fell in love with Northwestern in the sixth grade and knew that that was where I wanted to go. And it just happened that I was lucky enough to do well in school and get in. It was the only school I applied to, which probably was not the most comforting thing for my parents who wondered what's your backup plan, but I did not have one. That's pretty fantastic. I mean, I only applied to UMass uh, and their sport management program. So I, I get it. Yeah. Some might say that Northwestern is a bit more of a reach, um, you know. But I was 17 years old and naive and, what do you, you think you know everything. So I thought, I'm getting in. Well, it's an all-in mentality, right? Like, right. You don't, if yeah. you don't leave yourself options, uh, right. then you just have to make it happen. Yes. And luckily <laughs> it did. I was very happy when I got that. Back then, you still got paper letters many, many mm-hmm. years ago. And I was very, I remember 
it was really thin. And I thought, oh, this is not good. You know, they said <laughs> it's a thick thing. And I called my parents at work and we're all on the phone. And I was starting to tear up because I was like, it's really thin. And then I opened it. It was like, we are pleased. And my mom's like, no one's pleased to reject you. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. That's a fair point. It's a very yeah. fair point. Um, you, uh, it, it, given the fact that you have been working in sports for as long as you have now, I think a lot of people would be surprised by what you went to school for, um, originally. Uh, yes. How did, well, well, okay. Let me start with what did you think you wanted to do when you were going into college? I was going to be a doctor. I thought I was going to be a radiologist like my uncle's. Or maybe I would go be a dentist like my dad. Okay, so and this makes North- even less sense. Yes, but at Northwestern, you could not major in pre-med. There wasn't such a thing. You just had to pick a major, and you could still take pre-med classes, but there was no such thing as a pre-med major. So I picked French. <laughs> and I like French. And I um, could not pass organic chemistry. And that was the end <laughs> of my pre-med career. And I... So, yes, French. I went from the academic probation one quarter to the dean's list the next quarter after I dropped all the pre-med classes. And so I realized that what I wanted maybe was not what was going to happen. And I (laughs) thought, all right. And then my senior year, I'd been a French major and my parents, you know, finally nicely said, so what are you going to do with a French major? Said, How are you going to make know. money? <laughs> How are you make money? And I thought, well, maybe I'll, we looked into this program where you could get a one-year post-baccalaureate degree and then you could teach French. You'd have almost a master's degree. And I thought, okay, I'll do that. And this is going to sound so stupid, but I took the GREs and someone said, wow, you scored really well in the section that's like the LSAT. And I said, huh. And so in February of my senior year, I took the LSATs, which is how I decided to go to law school. Okay, and that's pretty great. <laughs> yeah, it, it worked out very well. I found that a lot in my career, things have happened just very randomly that I, the right place, the right time, meant to be whatever you want to say, it, it has worked out well. So yeah, I'm a French major who doesn't speak French very well anymore, but <laughs> then I went to law school. So uh, I, you know, I didn't know about the, the doctor uh, yes. path. Yes. So that just yes. makes the story even better. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. I, uh, when I went to UMass, I went specifically for sport management and, um, and, uh, Glenn Wong can tell you, uh, the the Dean at ASU law, right? Yeah. The best technically his title now. Um, so, uh, I almost, I was on probation and almost got kicked out my first year. Um, yeah, I came from like, that makes me feel better. Yeah. I came from a super strict family and I don't know, I, I'm not great at classes, but I'm really great at doing. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, the academic advisor at the time really fought for me and, um, it was actually Glenn's class that I took a little earlier than most people because it's so hard. Um, his intro to law class, sport law class that got me really interested. And so then that's kind of, I, I tell everyone at SLA that they can blame Glenn for uh, me <laughs> ending up on this path. <laughs> I like it. 
But I, I do tell some of the students sometimes it, it, I failed. Like I got F's and D's in college and I'm still okay. Oh my so God. Like, don't freak out about it. Y'all, so, I had to take accounting yeah. three times. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I tried so hard with organic chemistry. I will say that I remember I got 35 about 150 on the first test. And I went to the professor and I said, what can I do? And he's like, you need to study every night. I studied three hours a night, every night, just for that class. And I got a 14 out of 150 on the next one. Oh my God. So I called my mom and dad. And my mom and dad said, stop studying. Like it's, it, there's nothing you can do. Your brain is not wired this way. So just give up. And I was like, I'm good with that. We're just going to, you know, it's past the drop date. But I was like, I'm just going to take the bad grade. Cause I had really given everything I could to it. And it just didn't work. But then I found what did work and yeah. things well, were okay. Well, and that, that's a lesson that I think people have to take into business with them, right? You have to allow yourself to fail and fail quickly. Um, yes. That way yes. you can move on to the next thing, right? So, yep. uh, <laughs> so that is how I ended up in law school. That's amazing. You uh, went to the yeah. University of Cincinnati, Cincinnati College of Law. Um, yes. It was, was there a particular reason that you chose that school? Um, or was it just, you know, being closer to home? Well, it was March <laughs> and there was not as many schools that were still taking applications, but it was closer to home. I had applied there in Ohio, Ohio State and had to decide between the two. And I just liked the vibe of Cincinnati a little bit more. And I was just, you know, I'd been both of them were pretty, pretty close to my house, my parents' house. But so that wasn't really a deal breaker, but I just, I like the people at Cincinnati just a little bit more and I just ended up there and I was really happy with my choice. Did you at that point know kind of what area you wanted to focus on or were you going in just being like, hmm, law school, let's see what happens? I thought I would either be working in juvenile courts or a sports agent. And so I did two externships and the first one was in the domestic courts. And I realized very quickly, I, nope, this is just not for me. It's very, it's wonderful work, but I am not cut out for the emotional toll that it would take on me. So I kind of knew that quickly. And then I took a sports law class with an agent. And while I loved him, I realized that I don't think I am maybe meant to be an agent either. And so I did an externship in their compliance department in the athletics department at Cincinnati. And that was, I, clicked. I thought this is it. This is what I want to do. What was so, that what was that internship like? What what types of things were you doing? Well, it was very interesting because I got there and within maybe three months of maybe I don't remember how many months of doing the internship where I was doing eligibility waivers and helping understand rules and doing a little rules education for the coaches, the person who was the associate athletic director in charge of compliance left and she went to take a job at Ohio State. And there was nobody else in the department. So here I am, 22, 23 years old, and I'm the only person in the whole department that's doing compliance. And so it was great experience, but I was really thrown into the fire and having to work with really high profile uh, basketball coaches and football coaches on getting their students eligible, making sure everything, every waiver was done, any violation was processed. It was really down to me. The person that they had hired to replace the woman was not going to start for a couple of months. And so it was sort of me in the interim, just kind of figuring my way through it. So it was great experience, although it was terrifying. How did you figure out what you were supposed to be doing? I, there was a really nice person at Conference USA 
day at the time. Her name is Noreen Morris, and she's now the commissioner of the Northeast Conference. But at the time, she was the compliance person at Conference USA. And I pretty much call her every day. And <laughs> she was really nice. And there was another person working at Cincinnati that had done compliance um, long before in a different school. And so he could kind of give me a little bit of guidance. But a lot of it was just figuring it out on my own. And, you know, there were there was a, a secretary who worked in the compliance office that had been there for 30 some years. So she knew her way around the block and could really tell me, now you need to make sure you do this around this time. Heather would do this. So I think you should be doing that now. So there were a lot of people who really worked to help me, but a lot of it was reading the manual and figuring things out. Yeah. And that's not necessarily an easy task in and of itself. I mean, we all know that, uh, you know, any, any of the conference and then, you know, you look at NCAA rules like there, it's like reading legislation. Yes, it was. It really was. And that gave me, you know, with the law school, with all of it, it gave me a great background in reading, interpreting. It really prepared me well for my career. And so I'm so grateful to that experience because that's pretty much what sent me along my way. How did, how long did you stay um, doing that, you know, did you, did you say after you graduated from school or? Um... So I did it all of my second year. The summer after my second year was when I really stayed on and it was intense. And then during the third year as well, I stayed in the athletic department. And when I graduated, I stayed on for maybe a month, but then I was really starting my job search and also studying for the bar. So I didn't work in there and they had already hired someone. So they had a stronger department at that point. So I didn't feel like I was as necessary so I could devote a little more time studying for the bar and trying to find a job. When, um, I remember when I was graduating, um, I graduated right around when the recession hit. So it was like impossible to find a job. (laughs) Yes. I, my story of how I found the job, I tell all our students all the time because I think it's, looking back on it, it's it's a great story because I had interviewed, it was probably May, I was getting ready to graduate and there was a job at Wright State University, which is in Dayton, and it was a senior woman administrator and compliance person. And I was really into the job. And I said, okay, you know, I think I really want this. And I interviewed and they said, well, we really like you for compliance, but you don't have enough experience to be the senior woman administrator. So we've got to go in a different direction. Okay. At the same time, I interview for the NCAA for an enforcement job in their um, kind of processing violations. Mm -hmm. And I was really excited about that position. And so I remember I was getting ready to drive to take the bar exam in July. And I got the call from the NCAA saying I did not get the job. Okay. All right. I take the bar exam. I have to move home to my parents' house and it's probably mid-August and I still don't have anything. And I get this call and this woman says, hey, I'm with the Midwestern Collegiate Conference, which is now the Horizon League. But at the time it was the Midwestern Collegiate Conference. And she said, "I, I got your name from the people at Wright State University. They really liked you. And when they saw we had this opening, they're a member of our, you know, conference, they said we should call you immediately. And so I said, oh, great. Well, I go and I go on the interview. And we go to lunch with the person who had had the job before me and she was leaving. And so they wanted me to meet her. She could tell me what day to day was like and all that. And so I said to her, oh, Angie, it's nice to meet you. And as we're talking, I said, well, where are you going? And she said, oh, I'm going to work for the NCA in their enforcement department. Processing <laughs> violations. And so it was like, oh, 
so all of these things came together, like two big no's that were crushing to me led me to the job that I stayed there for 12 years and loved it. And it was, you know, the greatest thing ever. So I tell all the students, just because you get a no, you know, you never know where that will lead to. So that's how I got the job. Yeah. So for people listening who may not know, what is a senior woman administrator? So in every college athletic department, there is a requirement that they designate a person as a senior woman, I can't speak, the senior woman administrator. And it's usually the highest ranking female working in the athletic department. And they are tasked with really taking an active part in governance at the conference level and at the NCA level, as well as at the institutional level. And so it's really kind of the senior leadership female on the staff. So I, in looking back, I did realize that maybe at 25 years old, never having worked on a college campus before, other than as a student, I probably was not, you know, ready for that role. Um, Because, you know, it's usually someone who is very trusted and can help make decisions at the senior leadership level. Um, Is there a role specific to women's sports or is this really a position that was put in place to help increase the profile of women? Um, within college athletic departments? It was meant to be the latter, but some schools, it's a little bit of a tricky situation because some of them will just say, okay, well, you're the, they call it SWA, mm-hmm. and you'll just oversee all the women's sports, which is not the best in terms of career track to be an athletic director or conference commissioner because you aren't really getting the experience with football and men's basketball, which are the you know major revenue sports. It has changed a little bit in the last several years where you see more of the senior women administrators getting more of those men's sports, because that's really what it was meant to be, was provide a leadership role for women in the athletic department when there weren't very many female athletic directors. So it, it, it was started for a great purpose, but sometimes people got pigeonholed a little bit in that role. But that just depends on who the athletic director is. If you've got a great athletic director that recognizes that a woman can supervise football or men's basketball, then they, they do that. It, so it's really depending on where the school is and what the position is. Interesting. I always wondered what that was. Yep. <laughs> um, yes. And I'm sure a lot of my listeners were as well. So thank you for that explanation. Um, your role with the Horizon League was as an associate commissioner. So what does that entail? So I started off as just the director of compliance. And so my main job when I first got there was really to do all the compliance and helping the schools understand NCA rules. If they had a violation, I would help be the liaison with the NCA. It was a great job because I was never the bad guy. Either the, I could make the NCA the bad guy by saying, nope, they've said no, or the, you know, the school is directly telling the coaches, but I was sort of more of the helper to try to get them to understand the rules, help them find a way, not around the rules, but to way to find what they want to do in a way that's legal and then help process violations when they would have them. But as I was there, my boss, who is still the commissioner to this day, said, well, hey, would you be willing to take the bar in Indiana? And I said, well, let me find out if I passed Ohio first. Give me like <laughs> a little bit. And when I found out I passed the Ohio bar, I said, all right, I'll, I'll take the Indiana bar. So I took that in February. And as soon as I was licensed, then I took on some of the general counsel duties and really did all of our contracts, all of our legal work um, and did that for just a couple of years of only that. And then I, I was very lucky to have supportive supervisors and the commissioner who would say, OK, do you want to take on more? And so I started running championships and I started um, working with our television 
partners and figuring out where we were going to be broadcast and what our schedule would look like and all the things that go along with TV. And then I was our liaison to our corporate sponsorship outside agency that was doing our sales. And so I really got a good, I think I pretty much did everything at the conference level except sports information, which I never had any desire to ever do (laughs) stats or write press releases or any of that. But everything else was a student athlete advisory committee with conference championships with all of that. I really wanted to understand everything. So that was luckily, you know, I was there 12 years. So I got to grow and really do a lot of different things during my time. That's really fantastic. There are so many organizations that aren't really good at that and aren't great at recognizing the talent that they have. So, um, you know, you were really fortunate in that that type of uh, environment. I really was. And the one thing I think that helped me was I never said, I don't want to do compliance anymore. I kept on doing all of my main job and just kept asking for more things. And so I think I gave them the trust and eventually we hired more people under me to help more with the day-to-day compliance. But it wasn't that I just said, I'm sick of that. I want to do something new. It was like, I'll do more because, you know, as you are somewhere doing the same thing over and over again, you get more efficient and then you have more time. And so I was able to say, okay, well, let me fill that time with other things now that I want to learn. Um. I'm interested in why they wanted you to take the Indiana bar as opposed to wave in. Was that not an option or in-house counsel? I was, um, I'd only lived there six months. I don't think you could wave in that quickly because I had, I think I, I hadn't even passed the bar when I started there. So mm-hmm. I started in September and didn't get my bar results until October. And so I don't think there was an option to wave in. When I moved to Arizona, I did not have to take the bar. Thankfully I did wave in. So. <laughs> Yeah. I was very happy about that. <laughs> yeah, that I don't was think what, I would have remembered anything then. That's one of the questions I get a lot is, so did you take the Florida bar? And I'm like, oh God, no. <laughs> yeah, no. Now, no, no. I will say that until I, I moved in 2012 and in 2011 is when Arizona changed. Before that, you were required to take the bar no matter how long you had been practicing. There was no waving in. And so... I would have been very miserable had that been the case. Well, I guess unless you were, do they not have authorized in-house or limited license? It's limited, but then they want you to, like, you can do it while you're studying, while you're prepping, but they really want you to end up being uh, barred. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, Yeah. that's been the benefit is that limited or authorized in-house counsel uh, denomination where you don't have to take it as long as you're licensed and in good standing yeah. in another and my jurisdiction boss at the festival really wanted me to take it you know really wanted me to be barred there so I said okay let me just find out because I, I can't take the exam again I, if I can wave in we're good so luckily I was able to yeah I mean I think for the types of roles that you've had the types of roles that I've had you really don't need to be barred because right. unless you're going to attempt to represent in court or in front of a, a quasi-governmental yeah. entity there's no reason. No, um, never, I'm never doing that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's always something that people, you know, need to think about too, when they're thinking of, you know, going from state to state, if they're an attorney, I mean, I know doctors kind of has something similar, but, um, yes. and it's something that I don't think a lot of people early on, you know, when you're in college really recognize like, yeah, I'll just go wherever. And in sports, that's what you have to do is kind of go wherever, right? Right. Um, So it's important to keep abreast of those things. (laughs) Yes. 
uh, yes. and take that into consideration. Um, how did you end up at the Fiesta Bowl? I sort of stalked it. I know that sounds weird, <laughs> but I, I did. I was, you know, my boss and I, who I, I am still close with to this day, we we're talking about, he said, you could stay here for the rest of your life. I'm not retiring anytime soon. So you cannot become the commissioner because I'm not going to leave. <laughs> so I would be happy to have you here forever. But if you want to make a move, let's talk about it. You know, what do you think? And there had been a couple jobs that I had applied for throughout the years that I thought there was one at Northwestern that was a senior women administrator job. And I really thought I wanted to do it. And the interview just didn't go well. And I also thought, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure. I, my dream job, I don't know if it was you know, the reality of it would have been a dream anymore. And so there were a couple other ones that I'd applied for, but nothing really too strong. And then we had seen that the Fiesta Bowl had a scandal. And I had said, again, I know we talk about in sports, you have to be willing to move and you have to be willing to drop everything. And part of why I stayed at the Horizon League for 12 years was because I didn't want to move to certain places. I was a little bit geographically limited, which is maybe why I... I've been successful in my career, but I could have done other things. I could have been a commissioner. I could have been an AD, but I really had some of my own personal limitations. So I had said, you know, I think I would live in Phoenix. I think that's a place that I actually would live. And I think I could work for a bowl game. I'd sort of be interested in that. And the Fiesta Bowl had their scandal and they had said in their report that they were going to hire a general counsel and chief compliance officer. And so John, my boss and I were like, okay, we got to keep an eye on this. <laughs> so whenever that posts, like that's what we're going for. And they hired an executive director. It took several months for all of it to happen. And then we saw the job posted and immediately we went into action and, okay, said I'm submitting. And we had a couple people who called and said, hey, what's the deal? Do you know, do you know anything about the position? And so we really sort of went into stalking mode. And I came out and interviewed and I loved the executive director and I loved the staff they had in place and just worked out really well. And there I went. It was sort of a whirlwind, but. It was great. What, um, for those who may be too young to remember or just weren't paying attention or just have no idea, what was the yeah. scandal that, that hit right before they decided to make those moves? So the Fiesta Bowl had an executive director that was actually indicted and charged and went to prison for, um, it was really related to campaign contributions that an organization at the time could not make donations to uh, campaigns answer two political candidates and the executive director was doing it. There was a large cover up. They were using bonuses to like, they were giving staff members a bonus and telling them, Hey, donate money to this individual. Mm. And then we'll give you a bonus to cover that amount, which is definitely not legal. And there, there was a huge cover up involved. And then they went through and they looked and they really didn't have good governance practices. And they really had a lot of you know, expenditures that maybe were not consistent with a nonprofit organization. So they really had to do a lot of cleanup, really replace a lot of their board members. But the main one was getting changing over the executive director and some of the senior leadership team. And so they had been put on probation by the then BCS, which was the governing body of postseason football at the time. So they were on probation. They were trying to think they were under IRS investigation. So there were a lot of things that they were looking at to try to clean up. And one of the things they said was, we're going to bring someone in specifically to make sure we're doing what we say we will do and that we are doing everything the right way. So for people listening, you know, we hear about these things a little bit from time to time in the news right now. Um, 
ever since um, uh, the super PAC laws have changed. There's been discussion about whether or not charitable organizations will be able to um, directly donate to political campaigns and support um, political uh, candidates. And right now the law is that you cannot. Um, And so a lot of, uh, especially something with the Fiesta Bowl, um, you know, a big event, there are a lot of local politicians that have a say in how that event happens or how much funding is going to go into that um, committee for the event. Right. Absolutely. That was really, and the executive director at the time really wanted to do what was best for the bowl game. He was trying to position it so that the bowl game would stay relevant, would get the best teams, all of those things. He just went about it in the wrong way. And in my opinion, as I always said when I did compliance at the Horizon League and at Cincinnati, the cover-up is always worse than the crying. If you just say, you know what, I made a huge mistake and to give me my punishment and I'm really sorry and here were my intentions, but I went about it wrong, I think everything would have come out a little bit differently. But when there's a cover-up that is you know, very intense and involved a lot of different steps of actively trying to cover this up, it all spiraled and then they had to open up the books on everything. And then, you know, if, if any organization, if you open up the books to strict scrutiny, you'll find little things that are, you know, no one can be perfectly compliant, but if you're really going under that, then it's just, it snowballed. And so that's what happened. And it took down a lot of other really good people that were on the staff and some board members had to resign. And it was really unfortunate. And And even if with the best intentions, it just, it didn't go right. in a great way. Right. Yeah. And unlike a private company and maybe even a public company that, you know, is for profit with charitable organizations, you really have to be careful about the amount of money you're spending on items, on travel, on uh, events and entertainment and and the like. Absolutely. I mean, that was one of the big things that I was brought in to help make sure we had policies on gift acceptance and spending and tickets and things you could provide to um, legislators and all of that and really making sure that our own expenses were appropriate and making sure, you know, you do have to spend money as a nonprofit organization. That's not a bad thing, but you have to make sure that it's not exorbitant and that salaries of your staff members are not exorbitant. And so all of that got opened up. We had to put a lot of policies in place and a lot of checks and balances just to make sure that, you know, not that we didn't trust anyone, but just to make sure that we could show, hey, we did all of these things. So we had the financial, you know, paperwork, all the, everything kind of doubled up and double checked and kind of, we called it CYA. You just have to make sure everything is written down. So there was a lot of that, especially that first year when I came in. Oh, for sure. And, you know, I know with um, a lot of organizations and people think, oh, well, I can just, you know, give tickets to, you know, the rep, you know, in my area, you know, uh, congressman or whatever. And you're like, actually, (laughs) actually, actually you can't actually. Yeah. Right. And there was a lot of that because, you know, people don't quite know what you can and can't accept. You say, look, this is my line of work. I should be able to go to a game. And what we had to explain is like, look, if we're recognizing someone who is a politician and they're coming to the game and they're presenting an award or they're doing something, absolutely. But you can't just bring them there with their 
family and have four of them or fly them to a game at Notre Dame. So it was just really defining what the limits were and then making sure everyone understood. So it was a lot of education and a lot of paperwork. Um, And then with salaries, you know, that's a really interesting thing to look at. I mean, a lot of what you had to do was very subjective, right? I mean, who's going to say how much is exorbitant for something? Right. And um, with salaries, I know that they're, you know, you, in order to be able to get great talent, you have to be able to pay in line with the market, but whether or not that's the market compared to private or, you know, a for-profit company or comparing yourself against other nonprofits, how do you, how do you go about doing that? This is a great question. We had formed a compensation committee. So that was one of the first things we did was we made sure that there was a specific group of the board members that was charged with reviewing compensation of not just the executive director, but the key executives. And so we also did studies. Um, the bowl association will put out what all of the bowl games are paying all of their leadership teams. So we wanted to make sure we would be in line with that. And so we would look at our peer groups. And so the peer groups would be all of the now CFP bowls, but then the BCS bowls. But it was also making sure that the education level, the experience level, that we were bringing in people, that their experience and their education matched, you know, what the job position was and then what their salary should be. So it was just really a lot of making sure that the committee had the data that they needed to say, this is fair compensation, this is unfair compensation, this looks right in the range. And it wasn't, you know, every single person all the way down but it was really those key employees and the executive director and just making sure that they fell in line with the industry and the market, as you say. And so, right, you aren't comparing it to for-profit, but we also maybe weren't comparing it to a small nonprofit that had a much different budget and a much different goal. It really had to be compared to peer college bowl games and college athletics. And that was really our kind of broad-based market. What, um, what, what was the, the mission of the Fiesta Bowl? The Fiesta Bowl, you know, it's a great organization. It's changed some leadership. So I, I don't want to know if I, I don't want to say the mission now because I could be saying the mission statement wrong for what it is now. But at the time, it was really to put on a great bowl game and to bring economic impact and tourism to the state of Arizona. That's really what it did. And so it's not just the bowl game. It's bringing in hundreds of millions of economic impact. It's having great experiences for the student athletes and it's providing charitable donations back to the community. So it is truly a community organization. And I I believe it always was. I think we just got the focus a little bit more after I came on board, even before I got there, they started giving away charitable donations every year. Um, They were given away a million dollars at the time. It's even since grown. Um, but they really wanted to focus on giving back to the community. And so I think that's been, you know, it's a bowl game, but I think people maybe out there in the, in the general public think that all oh, these bowl executive directors are all making tons of money and they're all greedy. And I don't really think that's the case. I think the bowl games are really good for the community besides just the pure economic impact of having all these tourists come in for the game. It's also, you know, any money that's generated is really going back into the community. You must have, you know, going into that role in, it sounds odd to say this and let me caveat it by being like, clearly, you know, it, it was in a troubled state, but it's almost kind of fun to walk into that and to, to be able to dig into it and, and hopefully make change that, that has an impact on people. 
Absolutely. And I will say it was really fun because I got there after most of the drama was over. So, um, you know, the, the executive, I never met the executive director. I've still not met him. So I didn't have to be there for the terminations, the resignations, any of the stuff that was really emotional. I wasn't there for. And the executive director that brought me in had been on board for a while and he had really been good. And the board was already committed to making the changes. So what I was really doing was making policy that people already bought into. So it was actually, it was really fun because everybody knew how important it was. And it was, I won't say it was easy. It wasn't easy, but sometimes when you haven't gone through a scandal, you know, oh, compliance, this is such a pain. Nobody wants to spend time on this. No one wants to hear about it, but they were all really into it. Like, and they all understood. So I was able to get people on board from the staff to the board members. It was everyone working together towards one goal of cleaning everything and make cleaning it up and making sure you know, everything was done right. So that was a little bit easier in that there was already buy-in and it was fun to be able to kind of put all these processes in place and say, okay, we're, we're doing what we said. And it culminated, I will say by, you know, by towards the end of my tenure, we were awarded the national, uh, the college football playoff national championship, which was a huge deal. Um, yeah. that, you know, I, I think there were a lot of other bowl games that weren't real happy that said you're rewarding them for bad behavior by giving them a championship. And I think our, you know, what I took great pride in, it was saying, no, no, we trust them. They're doing things the right way and we trust them enough to give them our best property. I, I, I think that's, you know, would it's similar to what sometimes happens at the types of organizations I've worked at where like everybody, you know, people are like, oh, legal. And then there's, yeah. and then a lawsuit happens. And then they're yes. like, okay, let's make all the changes. Oh. Let's legal, legal. We need you. We yeah. like you. Hey, yeah, right. So how do we do this better to make it not happen? <laughs> you yeah. know, and, and, exactly. and you hate for that to happen, obviously. Right. Nobody, nobody enjoys no, right. that, but it, there is that moment of like, all right, people are going to listen to me right now. <laughs> yes. I think it also helped because I had come from the conference office and the work that I had done there with sponsorships and all those things, I also understood the business side of things. So when we would be looking at a sponsorship contract, I would actually bring in the people that were running the event and say, Mm -hmm. okay, are you able to fulfill all these things that maybe the sales team is going to promise? And so before we would even get into having it signed, everybody would look into it. And I think that kind of opened up the staff to say, wow, she's thinking through this and, and involving us in the process. So I think maybe that made me a little bit more friendly to them and their opinion that okay she gets it and she isn't just you know writing her own legalese somewhere in the corner and right. speaking words that we don't understand so yeah I try to be collaborative yeah I think that's so important I mean uh it's one of the things that I've talked about I'm I feel as though I'm I'm pretty business-minded I've you know been into other industries and had very general roles uh, as an attorney for both of those other organizations and so I like to know how the business works. I like to understand each department's pain points and and kind of be able to anticipate some of the sticking points for them. Yes, um, and, absolutely. And I think it's it's so important to be able to do that. And um, I mean, there you know, listen, there are going to always be days where someone pops into my office with something, and I'm like, Ugh. <laughs> yeah, like it happens. <laughs> Yes. I think we all have those days, no matter what our job is. Absolutely. <laughs> right. I, I said, I didn't think I would be 
a psychiatrist slash mediator as much as I was in those <laughs> couple of years, but it worked, you know? Yeah. Well, in that type of role too, I think you're dealing with a lot of latent, you know, if there's staff that's been there for a long time, they're, mm-hmm. you know, trying to work through some of those emotions from what had just occurred, right? And yes. people leaving yep. and, and all of that. Looking to get a leg up in your career? Florida International University is Miami's largest university with nearly 54,000 students, 1,100 full-time faculty, and more than 200,000 alumni. FIU online students can take advantage of high-impact opportunities that lead to success and leadership skills. Their students can earn degrees from a university that is committed to learning, research, entrepreneurship, innovation, and creativity so that graduates are prepared to succeed in a global market. Check out FIU's website for more information at fiuonline.com slash podcast. That's fiuonline.com slash podcast. Is the Fiesta Bowl, you know, a separate entity entity, entity um, than Arizona Sports and Entertainment? So the Fiesta Bowl is totally separate and I don't work with them anymore. I mean, I still would uh, review something if they were to call me and say, hey, can you look at this contract? I will. About two years after I got there, uh, the executive director left um, and one of the board members came in as the interim and really decided um, that the organization needed a complete overhaul and let go about uh, probably more than half of the staff. Whoa. And really thought that the staff should be about seven to 10 people and volunteers for the rest. And of course, we're all like, that's not work, but good luck. And so one of the things that they decided was, well, we're off probation. We've got the championship game. We don't need a general counsel anymore. That was really an, an, an interim step. And we don't need a full-time general counsel anymore. So I was like, but I moved across the country in my life and, you know, mm-hmm. hey. but I still stayed on and kind of stayed on as their hourly counsel. And so um, I had done legal work for them on and off for the past several years. It's been a while that they've needed anything, but I still have a great relationship with them, but I don't, I'm not employed by them at all. It happens. The, the timing was very perfect, but because while I was with the bowl, one of the things that my executive director had asked me to do was lead the bid for the college football playoff national championship. So I organized our whole community, helped write the bid, helped organize the bid, kind of put it all together. And then we were awarded the bid. But soon after that is when the executive director left and they decided to let go out of the staff. And we had to then as an organizing committee, because we had set it up as a, well, your, your listeners might understand, we set it up as an LLC under the Fiesta Bowl's parent organization. So the, the 501c3 of the festival was going to operate this LLC called the Arizona Organizing Committee. Once they let go of most of the staff, we all kind of realized, wait a minute, who's going to actually run this game? <laughs> yeah. The staff has got seven people. And so what the LLC decided with the help of the festival was that the LLC would then employ me and a couple of other people and we would work for the Arizona Organizing Committee. So I went from the festival a couple months later, it was hired by the organizing committee. So technically, I still worked for the parent entity. The, the Fiesta Bowl is actually the Arizona Sports Foundation. Mm-hmm. They have a few legal entities that are all related. But I ended up working for the LLC that was owned by the Fiesta Bowl to do the um, championship game. So it was uh, it was very incestuous. And I still worked with them 
and for them, but not really. And so I basically ran that game um, that was in 2016. And so then I so was there. And then after that, I went to work for the Final Four Local Organizing Committee, which we set up as a complete separate um, individual 501c3 corp. So in in the, you know, the area that you live in, um, is there not a general. Uh, so like in Tampa, you, you I'm sure you know, yes, this. Rob, in the sports. Commission, yeah. Yes. So we've yep. got Tampa Bay Sports Commission. I had Claire Lessinger on. Um, as a guest previously, who's works yep. with Rob. Yep. And, um, and so their, their entire purpose is to bring in these big sporting events and entertainment events and, and some smaller ones too, but you know, they really focus on the big ones. So they're the ones who submit the bid for the Super Bowl. Now we're the host team. Um, but you know, it, it they did that. They're, we have women's final four next year. Um, so they're, I think, technically on the clock for that right now. Um, yep. And uh, so is there not one of those where you are right now? There really isn't. And it was interesting because I came from Indianapolis and Indianapolis, I think, has the model sports commission. I mean, mm-hmm. they really do it the, the right way, I think. So I got here and I was a little bit you know, surprised that we didn't have one. And so the way that the Fiesta Bowl worked in the past was that the BCS was on a rotation between the different bowl games. And they all, there were four of them, and every four years you got the national championship. When they moved from the BCS to the CFP, you started bidding on it. And the bidders had to be entities that were not the bowl game. The bowl game could play a major part, but the entity had to be more community-based more like a sports commission, but there really wasn't a sports commission here. So the Fiesta Bowl, we took the lead on bidding on the college football playoff national championship. The Cardinals really had put together a host committee to put to to do the bid for the Super Bowl Mm -hmm. back in 2015. And then I happened to be working alongside while they were bidding on the final four for 2017. And that was really led by the stadium who put together a local organizing committee. So we had really, we have different organizing committees for each event that are not related, not legally related, and really not staff-wise related. I am now consulting for what's called the Arizona Sports and Entertainment Commission, but the focus for that group is the small events. It's mm-hmm. really youth soccer, um, pickleball, Grand Canyon State Games. It's the much smaller ones. The mega events are really done by different entities. And I wondered why that was. Part of it is, and I don't know how Tampa works, but here in Indianapolis, it was Marion County and it was a county tax base. And so it didn't matter if someone stayed in Carmel or Indianapolis or Fishers or, you know, Greenwood, the county tax. So everybody, you know, was supportive and it, everybody was on the same page. Whereas here it's city tax bases. So it's Tempe, it's Scottsdale, it's Phoenix, it's Mesa, it's Glendale. And so to try to get all those entities together is somewhat difficult. They all work together really, really well. But, you know, Scottsdale wants to make sure people are staying in Scottsdale hotel rooms. And Phoenix wants to make sure they're in Phoenix. And Glendale's got the stadium. So it was a little harder. And everybody works together really well. But it's just a little bit harder to put together a sports commission to work for those mega events. So while I think that's probably the dream, and I would love to see it here, it just hasn't been the way. So we've adapted. And then on this, we're currently bidding on the 2024 through 26 
Final Four. And recently, Arizona was awarded the 2023 Super Bowl. And that was really led mm-hmm. by the Cardinals. And then ours for the Final Four is really led by our organizing committee for the last Final Four. We kept that board together and kept the entity together. And that's who is then bidding on the next one. So it's still separate, although they coordinate, work together, have conversations. They are separate legal entities and separate staffs and everything. So it's a little bit different than Tampa or Indy. Yeah, for sure. I mean, in Tampa, it's Hillsborough County. Um, I'm not sure how much Pinellas County really, I mean, because they're across a bridge, like there's like a physical divide. Um, Yeah. So I think really it's, you know, focused on downtown Tampa and then, um, you know, by the stadium, which is, you know, kind of near downtown, but not really. and those areas, but that's probably, yeah, that's probably why they do it that way. Um, yeah. I know our, I mean, you know, Rob and Claire and them, they're just phenomenal. So they're they great. They job. had the championship the year after we did. Yeah. So it was great to actually go to the college football playoffs, not having to be stressed and sure. go watch them do everything. But I do remember there was some beach party in Clearwater. And I remember thinking, oh, I bet they had to do that because Clearwater probably did something for them. And, you know, you had to make sure you give everybody little bit of love and so well I remember it was a great yeah I mean I think part of it is um Tampa itself doesn't really have beach um so you know you've either got to go to St. Pete or Clearwater and Clearwater is closer the Clearwater beaches are closer um I mean they're all beautiful beaches and they're within half an hour and it's great um (laughs) yes so uh I am jealous of that. Yes. <laughs> I know. I know. I yeah. um, it is. It has definitely been one of my favorite things about moving down here from Massachusetts. Yeah. I mean, I grew up on Cape Cod, so it, I'm a bit of a, uh, a brat in that girl. sense. Yeah. yeah. But um, yeah. It, it, there's something, it's just different. It's clear. It's pretty. It's <laughs> like, you know, the sand is different. It's, it's a whole different world down here. They, they're right. You should have to get a passport to come here I think. <laughs> um, yes. for many reasons. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, when you decided to create your consulting entity and, and even with um, when you were doing, you're doing some of the of council stuff for Fiesta Bowl, how did you go about determining what your rates were going to be, how you were going to, you know, um, create your, your business entity that that was all very much outside of your the space yes. that you had encompassed. It it was difficult and trying to figure that out. I, I'm still trying to figure it out. I don't know that I have the best way of doing it yet because it's changed each year. So sure. when I left the festival, I was lucky enough that they gave me a little bit of time, more so than they did the rest of the staff, um, to know that I was going to not be employed anymore. So they said, you got to figure out your rate. What are you going to charge us? And I thought, oh my gosh, how? I have no idea. But luckily I could figure out what other lawyers had charged when we used outside counsel and I could sort of get a basis for that. And I, you know, could be a little more kind of aggressive, but I knew that a lot of the contracts that I was working on, a lot of the big projects were in process and it would cost them a lot more to have somebody else take over, to go to another outside firm. So I didn't feel too guilty about being in line with what other firms were charging around here. Even though I had not been on my own for years, I knew that, you know, I would be up to speed much better and they would still spend less with me than they would spend if they went somewhere else. And so I was able to sort of figure out what my hourly 
rates were. And, but I had to go out and get liability insurance and get the mm-hmm. things that I never even thought about because I'd just been in-house everywhere. And so that was a little difficult. But then I, I was an independent contractor for the championship game for the first few months before we really got everything started. And then I became a full-time employee. And so then that sort of went away. I still did the stuff for the Fiesta Bowl under um, the independent contractor and under the LLC. And then when I went to work for the Final Four local organizing committee, I really wasn't doing any other outside work. So I was just an employee for them. So then I went back to just being an employee. (laughs) And then when that ended, I get luckily very, you know, hired by ASU. And so I'm an employee there. But then the consulting on top of it is where it's an independent contractor. I'm the LLC. And I had to figure all that. Do I do separate bank accounts? And do I, how do I track my business expenses? And all of it, just an email address, all of those things that I had to figure out that I'm still working my way through and tax laws are changing and what's a write-off now. And so I'm still (laughs) muddling my way through things that I am probably at some point going to have to sit down with my accountant and say, okay, what business entity do I really want to be? So I'm still (laughs) working through that. It's, it's, you know, you'd think, oh, she's a lawyer. She can figure that out. Well, it's it's not the the law that I practice every day. It's right. different. Yeah. So no, yeah. It, same thing, you know, same thing yeah. for our little podcast here. Um, you know, we've, yes. we've gotten some advertisers over the last few months and, and trying to figure out like, Oh gosh, I should probably be doing something a little more formal. You know, when, right. when people ask me and I'm like, well, I'm still just doing like, you know, it's just me really. I've got guys that help on the back end, but you know, I, you know, I don't really, you know, I'm just talking to people about their lives and, and I've got a couple of people who just look at me and they go, uh-huh. And I'm like, I literally own nothing. I am judgment proof. Like right. the, the United States government and Navient own me for a very long time yeah. right now. Like I don't, what are they going to get? My cat? Yeah. They can't I, and have I Zoe. struggle with it too. If you're giving, no, you cannot have, you cannot have Zoe. I just, I still am not quite sure that I'm doing everything the right way, but I'm, I'm figuring it out as I go right. along. But, you know, I don't, I don't handle clients' money. I never have. So mm-hmm. the IOLTA account, all of that stuff that's very new to me that I, you know, I don't even really give legal advice to the Sports Entertainment Commission. I'm more of a strategic consultant. I'll review a contract. And so I make sure in that aspect that I'm covered. But mainly what I'm doing is business advice. How do you, you know, how do we generate revenue for this organization? How do we rebrand those things? And for the final four bid, I'm doing no legal work. Mm-hmm. So it's just a little bit different. It's more of the business consulting. And so what kind of liability insurance right. do I need? What kind of, you know, write-offs, all of it. It's just been very new. And I have never been good at tracking my hours. I never worked for a law firm. Same. So, <laughs> so with the festival, when I, for the first time, had to track my hours, I finally said, I'm not doing six minutes. I just can't do it. You're getting 15 minute increments. Like I can't, you know, I can figure that out. And so just tracking the hours was, was a whole new world for me that I was like, I don't like this. I would much rather you just pay me a retainer. Like if I went forward and let's not do hourly. So a lot of my things that I've been doing now are more just a monthly, you know, this is the fee and not having to count hours and minutes because it's just not where my strengths lie. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Same. I mean, 
The one good thing about your experience, though, particularly as general counsel of Festival, is that you had access to the rates of, um, you know, different positions within law firms that you yes. guys would use for outside counsel, right? Yep. So you were then, it, it's easier to get to that number, right, for your rate. Absolutely. Yes. And I mean, in my case, we had a lot of really high priced lawyers that were triple what I ended up charging, but I did have a pretty decent range. And even when I left, I, we, you know, I'd had in my own employment contract, I had a severance agreement. I had all that. And then I had to sign all this paperwork. And even still, I decided I'm going to an employment attorney and having him make look over everything and just make sure what I'm thinking is right and where I'm going with this is right. Because I still thought, you know, what do they say? A fool who, rep- the, what, there is a phrase and I'm, it's blanking on me now, but it's something about the person who represents himself has himself a fool has or a client. Fool. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So I was Agreed. like, let me just double check. But then I knew what he charged and he was a small lawyer. So I thought, okay, so I had a pretty good sense of where I could go, but luckily I wasn't just, but even with this consulting that I do now, it's still difficult for me to figure out how much work is it? What's it going to be? What's a fair rate? And I have some good friends that are also consultants in the Valley and kind of live in that world too. And so we bounce things off of each other. In a non-antitrust kind of way, of course. Well, they're PR people. (laughs) They're, you know, totally different. Like, but we, you know, kind of say like, does this seem insane or, oh, this seems right. So, yeah. yeah. No, I, I had, um, so I have radio influence or the guys that help me with the editing and, and uploading of, of everything online. And, um, and they work with the marketing agencies, the advertising agencies and, and they're local guys are really great guys. So everybody, Jerry and Jason, they're amazing. Um, and we have a lot of people in common. And so like, I knew they were going to, they're going to be great to work with. And I went through the agreement. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to send this to my friend, Dana and have her look at it too just to see if there's something right. I'm not thinking of. Right. You know, exactly. like I, you just, I, I think you just sometimes have to do that. Right. Like if, if, yep. if I'm ever given a, an actual employment agreement or a severance agreement, I think I would do the same thing because yeah, you're right. Like these aren't the things that we are uh, specialized in. We are right. more general or for you, you're very, you know, compliance oriented, but also fairly generalized and yes there are so many nuances and and I'm emotional about it you know like there're just things that I think I need an objective person to review it and say yep all is good so i have kind of i, I didn't have enough ego to not <laughs> let someone help me on that sure. so i was glad i did that do you um do th- some of the people that you are friends with who are consultants and stuff do you do they give you the kick in the butt when they think you're you know, undervaluing yourself or, um, maybe giving away too much. Yeah, I do. I have some friends that we've talked about that, that I need a reality check. Am I undervaluing myself? Am I overvaluing? I need a little bit of, you know, am I in the right range? And so luckily I do have a good group that can say, no, you know, I think you're working more on this than you thought you would. And so, you know, it is a little bit hard. I find women, um, I just have always found it. It's a little bit harder to ask for more money. It's a little bit harder to just mm-hmm. go and be assertive. And I've you know talked to my students about that. It, it's one of my weaknesses that I'm not as great at, um, that I'm looking more towards the future. So I might think, 
like, well, I'm hoping that this will lead to this. So I don't want to charge as much because I'm looking at the long picture. Whereas I think there are other people, men who are just like, nope, this is what you got to give me. And I need to be a little bit better about that. But it's just a growth curve that I'm still working on after having as many years of experience as I have. I still could be better at it. I find that when I've talked to people who are like, you know, if you were to, you know, say work here, you know, what, what could we, you know, get you for? And I throw out a number. They're like, okay, so our number three gets paid like 40 grand more than that. Oh, okay. Uh, Yeah. It's just very hard for me. I don't know. I I look at, I mean, I was laughing with someone when I read that Oliver Luck was making $800,000 a year at the NCA. And I thought, where did I go wrong in my life? Like, why am I not making $800,000 a year? What is going on? Well, I I think some of it too, right? Like, uh, and this is why they're, they're banning a a lot of uh, states are are starting to ban um, the ability of, of companies to ask what people's prior salaries are, because our frame of yes. reference is often based on our own personal experience, which yep. may have been crap. Right. And right. it I mean, isn't a good uh, value determinator. No. And I didn't make a lot of money at the horizon league. And I, you know, it was a small conference. I knew that I was making good money for where I was, but I wouldn't want that to be a determinant on my next job. And so I really hate that question of what were you making before I was underpaid. So, right. You know, like, <laughs> And I, I hate the other thing I hate, I, I try to talk to the students about it, but I hate when someone asks you what your salary requirements are, because that's the hardest thing for me is to figure out what enough, what the right number is. Yeah, that can be really difficult. Yeah. I think you, there are some good benchmarking tools, yes. um, depending on where you go. Sports is a little different, right? You, it's hard yeah. to use like a, um, one of the legal ones that, you know, a big firm puts out or a big uh, legal recruiting uh, firm puts out because in sports in particular, you are not getting paid the same in-house counsel rates that, you know, someone at a big, like a a normal company is. Um, Even when you take into account size and, um, you know, revenue and type of company, sports is its own unique weird animal. Absolutely. And it, it was a little, you know, with the bowl, it was a little helpful. I, GuideStar is my friend. I, you know, you can find the salaries, those on the 990s. That's a really helpful yes. tool for me if I'm working in the nonprofit world. So I was a little more comfortable with what the range should have been there. And I was actually able to ask and get more than what they had originally offered, which, no, I was very happy about. But Still, it's just, it's not the greatest. And I'm in a weird place with my, you know, sometimes it's in-house counsel, but sometimes it's COO. And so what is my role? Where are the comparable salaries? It's not quite as easy to find. So I would, you know, I I just am not the biggest fan of what is your desired salary range? You don't want to price yourself out, but you also don't want to be so low that they're like, yep, here, we got to steal. We're getting there for so much less than we would have had to pay. I found so it, it's hard. Yeah, it is. I found it. I have found it helpful when at the outset, the recruiter says something along the lines of, so here's the range that's yes. budgeted. 
Yes. Is that going to work? Glenn was great. When I was interviewing at ASU, he was like, this is the salary range right on the very first. And I was Mm -hmm. like, this is what this is what I like. Tell me what it pays and then let me make the decision. Right. You know, and and a range is great. But if you just ask me, what do you think you should make? Well, I think I should make a million dollars a year, but clearly you can't pay me that. So I feel like we could just maybe be, you know, a little more open. I do like that on the front end. if They're a little open about the range. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. I, and, and that's a that's a tactic that a lot of people use when when a recruiter or, um, you know, in it, even an internal recruiter asks, you know, what do you you know, what are your salary requirements? Like, well, you know, it'd be helpful if I knew not in these words be better than me as I say this right now, but it'd be helpful right. if I had what your budgeted range is, yes. um, you know, so I guess you could say something much more classy than I uh, like. Uh, you know, uh, could you tell me what your budgeted range is? And I can tell you whether or not I fall within that range, right. you know, That's a great way. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes I have to have conversations with myself before interviews yeah. so that I don't oh, say things do like too. that, <laughs> yes, but you know, it's so yeah. important. It is so important to do that research. And I think that that's, um, something that, isn't really talked about a lot, right? Like mm-hmm. people will say, well, yeah, you do some research, but like where and how, where, and, how, right. Yep. And, and those forms that you just mentioned are, are great, especially if you're at a key employee or executive level, it's a little, yes. it's a little more difficult the further down you go, but sometimes right. in their annual reports, you might be able to find that information. Yeah. Um, and then if you're at a state school, it's all going to be online. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Absolutely. There are ways. And so it's a, that's a good thing. And, you know, obviously the internet has made it much easier than I'm sure it was 20 years ago when people were searching, but, um, and I, you know, I tell my students and I know this for myself that had I, if I wanted to make it all about the money, then I would not have gone into sports, but I, that was not as big of a priority for me, but. Right. The the biggest myth, uh, about, for anyone who hasn't worked in sports is, Oh my God, you work for an NFL team. You must get paid so much money. I'm like, guess what? I don't wear a Jersey. So, (laughs) so I don't, that's where all the money goes. Um, and, uh, you know, we know it going into it, or at least you hope that, um, professors like yourself are, uh, informing, um, you know, I know at UMass yes. they did, they're like, yeah, you're not going to make any money. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm very, I am the dream crusher in our careers class during the first week. I have to get the expectations lowered a little bit about what we got to make and that you're not going to be an AD in five years. So, right. Yeah. Um, and that if you're an agent, you're basically an adult babysitter. Right. That's what I said. And a gopher. So yeah. if that's what you want. Go ahead. Yeah. Have yeah. fun with that. Yeah. Um, and if you're a baseball agent, you've got a whole bunch of people that you're just paying a lot out of like your pocket for like supplies and equipment and stuff when they're in the minors yeah. on yeah. the hopes that they <laughs> yes. make yes. it to the majors. I had uh, Lisa Pike, Master Alexis was um, it, one of my professors, too. So I remember her telling us and Steve McKelvey. I mean, you know, that program at UMass does a great job of informing uh <laughs> But I just remember yeah. going, nope, not doing well, yeah. that. That's how mine was. I I was helping out an agent that I had met in law school, I think the first summer a little bit. And I just remember it was like helping his girlfriend with a car deal. And I was like, 
I can't. I, I cannot do this. Nope. I'm I'm good. Like it's not the world for me. Yeah. How did um how did your role at ASU come about? So I had um through the final four and working on that local organizing committee, Glenn and Sam had approached us about doing a continuing legal education seminar in conjunction with the final four. And so I naturally sort of was a liaison for them because that was my world and mm-hmm. no one else really understood that. And so I started working with them and became really the day-to-day contact with them on creating this um, seminar, getting the speakers and all of the work behind the scenes. So I got to know them really well and I really liked them. And towards the end of the final four time, I guess it would have been maybe in January, February, they said, okay, well, Glenn is taking over the program now. And I was like, oh, that's great. I think that will be so good for the program. I remember going to my first SLA conference however many years ago, and I sat in a session with Glenn, and I was like, this guy's amazing. And so <laughs> I'm like, now I'm working with you. It's great. And they said, well, would you ever consider teaching? We think we're going to open up a lecture position. And I was like, uh, yes, and I'll be done here in June because we don't have a final four anymore. So the timing worked out really well, and I went through the interview process, and it just sort of fell into place again at the right time that I was able to finish up with the final four and then start you know, teaching right after that. And what is a lecturer role position as opposed to say a tenured professor? I don't have to publish. Um, I don't have to do any of that. I, I really just have to teach the classes. And then I do a little bit, um, with our events that we do at the law school, with our advisory board, just because events are my background, running mm-hmm. events, doing all that. So that's where I fit in. And I'll help with the students with advising. But really, my role is limited to teaching the two classes a semester that are mine. And so I don't quite know what the difference between a professor and a lecturer is. It's probably that I don't have any experience. So I went into the lecturer role, <laughs> but that's OK by me. Is it more akin to an adjunct professor? No, it's full-time. I'm full-time with benefits nine months. We don't have classes in the summer. Right. So I think it's just a difference. We've got another one that came on board right around the same time I had, but he had been an adjunct professor for years. And I think he became a professor of practice. So I have not looked up the difference in our salaries because, you know, sometimes it's best not to know. Yeah. But I'm just assuming <laughs> that the difference between a lecturer and a professor is how much you make, maybe. I don't know. Well, and the publishing comes with all the research and and doing all of that, right? Yes. Yeah. And none of, and there's, there's tenure track and non-tenure track professor. And I think, I think that he is non-tenure track anyway, so you don't have to publish. And I, that was something that was, I always joke with Glenn, that was one of my weaknesses in law school was writing papers and citing. And I, I hated it. I was like, I don't want to write research papers. So I was like, please tell me I don't have to do that. Um, I'm doing it a little bit for, um, it's really interesting. We're doing research on the backgrounds of athletic directors. And so I'm really interested in the research, but when I've got some student research assistants and when they're writing things about absolute zero and the disparity, I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I don't know how to write like this. I can write an article for the USA Today or for the SBJ, right, right. but I cannot write a scholarly thing other than like helping with it. But I need a lot of assistance in that. Is that similar to what um, Glenn put out this last year, I guess, on in-house yes. counsel? Uh, yes, only what we're just doing it now. And I'm supervising the students that are doing the research and data collection. We're about to actually kind of finish it this week, hopefully, but on all of the backgrounds on 
athletic directors at the NCAA Division One, Two, and Three level. So it's gender, ethnicity, years of experience, age, education, backgrounds. It's really wide ranging. It's that's really interesting to me. So that I was all in for. But if you ask me to write a theoretical paper on how gambling is going to affect the NCAA, I would want to shoot myself. So, yeah. You just say, uh, go talk to Dan Wallach. Yeah, um. please go talk to someone else. There are so many people that are great at that. I yeah. <laughs> am not. And so even in teaching, in the classes that I teach, it is very practical. It's not as theoretical and sure. academic as maybe some of the other professors are, but it's just not who I am. So well, and I am much more practical. I see. I, I feel like you and I are pretty similar in that instead of taking on the the lawyer personality, it's, you know, we try and make the law a little more accessible and yes. speak in, in normal human terms. <laughs> yes, so absolutely. I always say that I'm the least lawyerly lawyer you've ever met because <laughs> I am still very much myself and yes. I'll drop the F-bombs when trying to explain what the difference right. between indemnification provisions is or yes. or whatever, you know what I mean? And And able to Sometimes I probably sound like a bumbling idiot while I'm doing it, but I think people understand it more than if I gave the really high, you know, citing cases and stuff like that. I I think we are the same. We are the same person because I can say, I don't know, other than in class now, the last time I cited a case, I really, it's just not what, you know, if I'm explaining to someone something that's, they don't care that it's, you know, precedent from this case, just tell me what I'm allowed to do when I'm not allowed to do it. Like, what does a contract have to say? And so I think, you know, I have to say cases in class now, but other than that, I really have not been one who's very, you know, I want plain English. Bush. I don't exactly. want legal use. Yeah. So my, yeah. um, my former boss, David Cohen, I don't know if you've met him through SLA, but, um, uh, he, he like dropped a, a, a case name one day and I just looked at him and I'm like, what are you even talking about right now? <laughs> Who are you trying to impress? <laughs> yeah. I think in my life, like Oban, some of the big cases that were like affecting sure. my day to day life. Okay. But no, and I don't think I've ever used whereas in a contract that I've ever drafted because. So I, I don't have, like it. but you yeah. know, yeah, you know, whatever. Uh, do right. I prefer not to? Yes. Right. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll leave it in if it's someone else's draft. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm just gonna go ahead and put it a little more basic. As sure. long as we can get all the stuff that needs to be in there, there. Right. So. Right, and you know, with litigation, I think uh, a lot of the benefit of being in-house counsel, you know, being general counsel or maybe in charge of litigation is you're not doing the litigation yourself, right? You're managing the outside counsel who are handling the litigation. Maybe you're helping the strategy a little bit, but you're not the one who has to go in and make sure the case citing is correct on the brief you're about to file or, or what have you like after a while, especially if you're at an organization that gets similar types of lawsuits filed against it. um, You know, you may, know like oh yeah we're gonna end up citing that or whatever but as long as you know the general generalized rules of procedure in terms of like timing of things because that's what you really care about right making sure right. you're getting everything out to whomever you need to get it out to um and tracking all of that then you know absolutely you show up and, and- i've never been afraid of using outside counsel i mean that's one of the things that i was talked to a woman who was the general counsel for the houston super bowl and she asked me 
you know what? I've been having some trouble because I feel like I'm the lawyer and I should do everything myself. And I was like, well, I don't feel that way. I, yeah, said, no. I feel like I draft a lot of the contracts or I'll draft it, but I'll send it out and have it reviewed. And if I spend the bulk of the time drafting, I mean, I don't want necessarily them to draft it for me because that takes more hours and managing a budget. But if I can get a basic thing going and someone else can review it, that really works in that world every day, whether it's real estate, a rent or whatever sure. it might be, I said, I'm always happy to have outside counsel helping the areas where, like you had said earlier, I'm more general and they are really specific in their knowledge of that sure. one area. So I've never been afraid to say, I need a little help here. Oh gosh. Like anything that has to do with banking. I yeah. am like, that's the first, you know, my CFO right. sends me something and it's about, it's some sort of like terms of some banking thing. I'm like, um, yep, uh, that's going out. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'll, I'll review something. I'll mark it up with my own little red line comments and then I would send it. I mean, that's, we were really lucky for final four and for CFP, we had a pro bono firm that did all of our outside legal work, but they were great. I would send it to them with my comments and then I'd be like, okay. And then they would add theirs in and it was perfect because I knew they were the experts, but I also wanted to be respectful of their time and not have to have them go from scratch or draft something for me. So I, you know, but I knew that they would be able to find something like you said, in a banking contract or a lease that I might not recognize right. right away. I do a lot of, okay, here's like, here's the agreement, guys. I want you only to redline what absolutely has to be redlined. Yes. If there's something yes. stylistic, just keep it to yourself. Right. <laughs> like, That's what I say too. I don't care. I just care about the substance, not the style. Right. Yeah. Like let's yep. just, yeah. Um, yep. So what are you teaching at ASU? So I teach four classes in the fall. I team teach with Sam Renault, who I think, you know, mm-hmm. we teach a careers class. And I really think that's sort of how to get a job, how to keep a job and then how to move up in your job. So we're really teaching them resume skills, networking and opening them up to the industry as a whole in sports and really, you know, knowing that there's more to it than being an agent or an athletic director. So that's the one class that's really kind of fun. And then the second class is U.S. law. And that's for our master's in sport law business students that aren't going to be lawyers necessarily. Some may choose to go to law school after the program, but right now they're just getting their master's degree. And so I'm really teaching them how to think like a lawyer when you aren't one. Mm -hmm. And so it's, you know, the, the difference between what's fair and what's legal. And I got really lucky this year. As the semester was going on, the Ezekiel Elliott case was happening. And so in real time, the kids could be reading the briefs Mm -hmm. and trying to understand what each side was and predicting the outcome. And it couldn't have been better timing. And I need something to happen like that in the fall again, where they're actually able to understand these terms and what is jurisdiction and what is, you know, a collective bargaining agreement? What is arbitration? All of those things that it was great because I could really teach them but it's all a sports focus. So the U.S. law cool. class, all of our cases are um, have something to do with sports. And then um, in the spring, I teach a negotiations class and that's team taught with a lot of people in the Valley that are working in sports law. Um, Ray Anderson, who's the athletic director of ASU, Greg Clifton, who is an attorney here in town and yep. Lon Babby. Mm-hmm. And um, Glenn, all of us sort of team taught that one, but I was the main kind of person that went there every week and lectured and also kept them through their assignments and their ongoing negotiation project. And the last one that I taught is a big events class. And I created that one. I'm sure 
you probably took a similar one with Glenn at UMass, but this is a little bit different. We just are learning about everything that it takes to run a big event from a bid to operations, to safety, to everything all, yeah. all the way up until an economic impact study at the end. I think, um, I think at UMass, when I was there, the something similar-ish, um, although I think you probably go into more, you look at more broad scale and, and bigger. We did the Hagus Hoopla. And so yes. it was a class yep. that you could take it to put on this really big, um, I think it was like three on three basketball tournament. And then, yep. um, so that's awesome. I mean, I don't think it, it, one of the benefits of this podcast, I think has been for people to see all the different types of positions that are available in sport, right? Whether it's being a professor or working as a um, guest and member relations person, you know, client retention, um, or being a marketing agent or um, being the director of operations for a players association. You know, I, I love that you're, you're kind of doing that with that events role and with your career um, class, which if, my podcast isn't on your syllabus. I'm going to be really, really offended. No, it is definitely going to be. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to make our pod. I want to make our syllabus. And Sam and I are working on that one a little bit more modern, uh, not just a textbook. You know, I kind of maybe want them subscribing to SBJ. So we've got some ideas on how we can. Um, oh yeah. SBJ. A should, little, but, we, we yeah. did that at UMass. That was a requirement. Yeah. We had, um, yep. in the sim, in a similar type of class, it was more of a, like a seminar, a weekly seminar, I think. And you had to also, um, read and do some sort, you'd pick an article out of SBJ and do some sort of analysis on it, you know, kind of like an article report. Um, yep. and, um, so I think I always think that that's a good idea because SBJ, no matter what you end up doing is in sport is, you know, the Mecca. Totally of relevant. Information. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, everything. Yeah. Someone yeah. else the other day, I forget who I was talking to, but they said that they, oh, um, uh, Janelle at USF, um, it, she's like, I'm putting your podcast on the syllabus. I'm like, yes. Yes. No, we definitely that's will. Awesome. I mean, I. I think that would, that's what they need at the student and they are super into it. They want to start their own at the, um, in the sport law business program. Uh, Sam has been working with a couple of students where they want to start their own podcast and I had to be interviewed for theirs and that's I think fun. that was terrible, but no, yes, but no, I'm sure it was fine, you know, but that it's, that's what they want and they want content that necessarily isn't, or isn't necessarily just reading from a textbook. So. Well, right. And, um, and it's easier, I think sometimes yes. just to listen and absorb, um, yep. for your U S law class. So there's a, a new lawsuit that I think you liked my, um, my tweet about it today. So depending on how that goes, the Reebok CrossFit one, um, is, uh, that should be pretty interesting. Yeah. If they don't get it settled quickly. Um, I need it to go through about November. Yeah. So that's so, what I need. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm thinking, listen, it's not the habit of the, of to sue your sponsors. Right. So right. Um, I would assume that they've tried to go about dispute resolution in other forms and yep. that 
I mean, if it doesn't settle quickly, it's unlikely to settle. Um, because why would you spend the money? Right. Yeah. That would be fascinating. We had it too. When I was, before I had gotten to the festival, um, they had sued ASTA, which is the Arizona Sports and Tourism Authority, which operates the stadium, which is where they play. And it was fascinating to me after it was all settled and everything by the time I got there. But I'm thinking, you sued a partner. Like you did all this publicity yeah. and you did all this. I don't feel like that was maybe the best way. And I think the, this Reebok one is probably a little bit different. They have exhausted all things. I think this one was a little more, you know, politically minded. But yeah. it's always interesting to me that, wait a minute, you guys still have to be in a relationship. That's never a good thing when well, you're suing someone to stay married to. Well, yes and no, you might not have to stay married to, right? right? So well, yeah, it, right. it might be part of the contract that, you know, if you default and we've tried to yep. go through, I'm always fascinated when it doesn't go to arbitration. You're two commercial entities. How are yes. you doing this out in the public? Right. As opposed right. to mandatory arbitration. Yes. Which is, I think, one of the reasons why the NCA settled that lawsuit um, with the concussions is maybe they don't want documents out there in the public. Maybe there are things that they just would rather settle and that way there are no, you know, things that get out there that they don't want getting out there. Oh, for so, sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, but I would I, agree in this case, that's interesting. Yeah. I think that's the case for a lot of, um, you know, it, even out, outside of sport, you know, for a lot of, um, lawsuits, if you can't push it into arbitration, which keeps things confidential, uh, and that's the main reason for doing it, right? Um, yep. it, and it it almost forces everyone to show their cards pretty early, then because uh, there's no need to play the games at that point. You know, when you're right. maybe in a normal civil court type of dispute, you may play some games a little bit more. Not that I necessarily you would tell the the gray line of yes compliance. Yes. Let's say <laughs> right, yeah. So. Uh, I saw something on your Twitter today um, that I wanted to ask you about. Oh. It's kind of timely, and that's about Mesa Plays. Ah, uh, yes, that is an initiative. I, I'm that's kind of with my sports commission world. Uh, they are wanting to build a bunch of youth facilities here in Mesa, um, which is one of our communities um, in the greater Phoenix metro area, and it would really bring in a lot of youth events and a lot of, open up a lot of new events that we could get here in the Valley, but it's going to be a tax initiative. It's got to be a vote. And so I've just tried to be supportive of their initiative for it and to really kind of help build new facilities in Arizona, particularly in Maricopa County that can be used for major sporting things. Cause that's one of the things that we're finding here. Pickleball, just as an example, which pickleball wouldn't be included, but what the hell we is don't have pickleball? pickleball is like the biggest growing sport. I had no idea. Like it is tennis, but you play it on a much smaller court with almost like a racquetball and it's like a wiffle ball ball. So it's a little, little bit different, but it looks like a tennis court. Okay. They're just smaller. There's about three pickleball, pickleball courts to one tennis court. Okay. It's gotten popular. It's getting a little younger, but it's definitely popular with a more senior population. So it's a Florida and Arizona really big mm -hmm. thing, but they have national tournaments and here we don't have enough courts to match um, the need for it. There are actually some of the hotels turning some of their tennis courts into pickleball courts because that's what the desire is. But we don't have enough softball fields. We don't have enough 
soccer fields. We've yeah. got a lot of events that we could bring in here and there's just not enough big fields and big, you know, large youth facilities to handle them. And so if we can get those, I think sometimes people think from a tourism and economic development standpoint, it's all about a Super Bowl. It's all about a final four, but there's huge economic development in youth amateur sports tourism. Oh, sure. I mean, these traveling things. So if, if Mesa is able to get these new fields, it's just going to open up a world of events that can come to the Valley. So I'm just, you know, really supportive of it. I have nothing to do with the initiative. I'm not part of the group. I just, as part of the sports commission, am really supportive of them. And they've asked, you know, to help a little bit with publicity. And so anything I can do to say, yes, I don't live in Mesa, but I would vote for it if I did live there. Um, do you know where people who happen to live in that area could go to get more information on it? If they're listening. Um, oh, it's yes. It's Mesa plays, but I cannot remember the website. We'll link. We'll find it. We'll yes. Link. Okay. Yeah. It'll be on absolutely. The <laughs> yep. I'm okay. sorry to put you Excellent. on the spot there. Um, That's okay. No, I just saw it and I was like, Oh, that looks really interesting. And yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, we're, we're very fortunate here. We've, we have a lot of, a lot of those, but you know, we lack hotels space. Um, and, and like high end hotels. So that's part of, um, what Jeff Finnick over at the lightning and his, uh, development organization SPP have been doing and, um, with, you know, the revitalization of downtown Tampa. And, um, it's amazing to see the difference those things can make in a community. We we're fortunate here. We have a lot of great hotels. We haven't had as many downtown. So more downtown rooms are coming online, which is great for our big events, but we are really fortunate that we have lots and lots of hotel rooms. So I think as part of the sports commission, what we've tried to say is let us help you fill those rooms when you're not busy. And so what events can we bring in in the summer? What events can we bring in over the holidays when you don't have the corporate travel? Because, you know, in February and March, it's not really, the hotels aren't struggling here. Right, so right. we don't need events that want to come in in February and March. But in July and August, you know, can we bring in volleyball? What can we bring in that, you know, it's Softball a little hot outside, right? You know, so stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. What can we do? And so with all of it, with Phoenix Rising, possibly, you know, maybe becoming an MLS team, all of those things can just really improve the Valley in terms of visitors and tourism. And then, as we always say, you know, people who come here maybe then want to come and move their business here. And sure. that's one of the great things that I think our governor has done um, and our Commerce Authority and our Arizona Office of Tourism have really made sure for all of our major events that they have an economic um, forum, really a CEO forum attached to it where they can showcase our state to people who want to move their business here, expand their business here, open new businesses here, mm-hmm. all of that stuff. So they really use sports as a way to bring in business, not just travel and leisure tourism, but yeah. real business. Yeah, we've got that too, which is, it's yeah, really cool it's to great. see at the end of yeah. the year when they do their big presentations, um, what that impact yeah. has been. Uh, it's it's yep. incredible. Um, yeah. Are you guys uh, part of this next round of World Cup bids internally? No. No? No, we were not. Um, we just, the I was not part of it, um, but the stadium, uh, I think, was looked at early on and was part of the process early on, but has moved through it. It just proved a little bit too difficult to get everything together to actually yeah. submit. I think it was probably some of the same issues. I did talk to Rob a little bit yeah. about that. 
the contracts were a little um, cumbersome. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. a nice way of saying yeah. it. Yeah. I, I didn't, yes. I, you know, I, uh, I, I speak with, with them fairly often. Um, and we've had some of those discussions and I'm like, I can only imagine, you know, how one-sided they must be. So, yes, they're really modeled after more of a European or an Ether, international. Yeah. yeah. And, and that just doesn't necessarily fit here where you might tell someone that you have to build a roof. Well, <laughs> hold on, wait a minute. Right. So. Yeah, hold on. Let me, do whatever let, let me do that to Raymond James Stadium. That's going right. to work out. Or, or just trust us. Like, we're not going to ask you to do anything crazy. But the contract says we can. Right. But right. we're not going to. And it's a little hard to get, you know, you got to have the state sign off, the cities. And so we just, you know, I, I'm so excited that it's coming. I think it's fantastic. And I cannot wait to go. But right. um, I think it just maybe wasn't best at the time for Arizona, sadly. Although I would have liked to have seen it here. You know, and, and I think people need to understand too, you know, all of the, the little dots on the map, they now go through yet another round of right. bids. Yep. So now they'll, they'll narrow the focus on the actual sites for the, the particular yeah. games and they're not, they're not all guaranteed a game yet. So, mm-hmm. um, so that'll be interesting to see how that, that one shakes out. Yes, I agree. I'm really interested to see who they finally end up selecting. Yeah, for sure. I mean, anything to do with FIFA, I'm always a little just watching. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Here. <laughs> and even from a geographic standpoint for us, we probably, you know, what would do well in Arizona? Well, you know, having Mexico would really do well or having the United States would do really well in terms of drawing attendance. And it wasn't very likely that we were going to get the U.S. team in group play. It wasn't likely that we were going to get Mexico. I mean, that would probably end up in Mexico. So right, right. because the bid is the United bid, we sort of had to think geographically like, well, wait a minute. You know, what do we how do you know if you're going to actually make a good amount of revenue for the expenses that are significant that you have to put out? So you mean Iceland think- versus Argentina wouldn't do it for you? I mean, I like to watch it on TV, right. but I don't know that it would bring in quite as much economic impact as Mexico versus sure. USA. Yeah, right? agreed. So, um, yeah. So in wrapping up, I like to ask people what they do by way of self-care. <laughs> uh, well, I am very fortunate that my family is out here nine months a year, my parents. And so I'm really lucky to get to see them. I travel a lot. Um, I've been very fortunate that I've had flexible, um, you know, work where I'm able to take vacations. And I do. I mean, I make sure I work hard and I work at home and I work whatever, but I will go on vacation. I travel a lot. Um, And uh, my other big self-care, I am a spa girl. Like I need (laughs) my spa time. So those are kind of my three main things, family, travel, and give me a little spa time. Hey, I think that all works, right? Um, uh, it's, it, I think everybody finds their own way of doing it. And it's great that you, you do prioritize some of it. So yes, um, yes, it, we all, especially in our industry, it's so easy to burn out and it can be really, really important um, to make sure you are getting that time, particularly when it's a little bit slower. You know, yes, and- absolutely. Well, and I found that I like to work at home. I, I, you know, like to take my laptop home and do work here. And I like the housewives on in the background. It is great background <laughs> noise when I'm like having to do, you know, work that's hard, but not quite as, you know, right. difficult, but just things that I get done. I can watch a housewives on Bravo all day. 
So that's, you know, <laughs> I love I it. Other thing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate it. And I think, um, you know, I think my audience is going to, to have a lot to, to chew on after this one, which is always great. Awesome. Well, this has been really fun for me. I'm so appreciative of the opportunity. Huge thank you to Stephanie for taking time to chat with me. She's had such an interesting career in the industry and definitely went a different path than so many other attorneys I know. I am a bit of a doofus and I forgot to ask her how y'all can follow her. So please follow her at SAJ5771 on Twitter. Also per usual, I really want to thank Jerry and Jason at Radio Influence for their support and easy breezy attitudes when I'm freaking out and overwhelmed. You guys are the absolute best. Make sure all of you listeners, make sure you are subscribing, rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn and RadioInfluence.com or LTPFPod.com. And again, you can follow the podcast at LTPF pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Insta. And my personal Twitter is at Bobby Sue. I hope you all have a lovely week. This is a crush performance quick fix on radio influence. The World Cup is the globe's biggest sporting event. There's over 3.4 billion people expected to tune in at some point to watch this event, which is incredible. One billion people watched the 2014 World Cup final between Argentina and Germany, according to FIFA. And by comparison, the global audience for the Super Bowl is roughly about 150 million. There is absolutely no comparison. We could look at the numbers from the Winter Olympics and Summer Olympics, which are the two other big major sporting events on the calendar. Uh, but this World Cup, the number of eyes who will be tuning in and looking at this competition is unbelievable. It's no wonder uh, the revenue is there. Crush Performance with the Crusher, Jeff Crushell, can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com.